Well, clearly this one deserves lamentation status. I mean, obviously, right? <laughs> I'm, uh... I'm gonna go ahead and admit, this one actually made me tear up a bit. More than once. It's a good episode. Very flawed. Surprisingly good. It's no surprise that it's as flawed as it is. Even the writers have admitted their own errors in the logic of the episode and the plot. Because, well... Uh, this episode kind of was thrown together basically at the last minute. In fact, it was thrown together while they were working on Preemptive Strike. As I mentioned many, many times before now, the crew, as in the production staff, the writers, the producers, and the actors, were all just kind of <laughs> at this point in time because they were working on all of these things simultaneously. It's worth noting that there was like a 10-day break in between this and principal shooting beginning for generations. I, I might have the number wrong, but it was a very small period of time, you know, however you want to slice that. So they had this massive time crunch, and they're like, okay, what do we do? Now, I mentioned they wrote the episode, the initial episode, earlier. That, however, isn't quite getting across all of the problems they had, because what they did was they were like, okay, what do we want to do? And Pillar basically dictated the, the standards. The episode has to include Picard. I mean, it has to be about Picard. It has to be about Picard, Q, and time travel. And with those three pillars, no pun intended, uh, they went forward and were like, okay, this is how we're going to make the episode. So they made the episode. The original draft, there was actually a fourth timeline. And I know what you're thinking. Well, what other time could be really specifically and, and powerfully relevant to both Q and Picard? Yeah, so the Borg was the obvious choice there. No, seriously, if you think about it, you know, Q is who basically introduced us to the Borg, which probably saved us in the end. And then there's the fact that, you know, Picard himself, his personal nemesis, his con, has always been the Borg. So, yeah, lines up perfectly. They ejected that. And what's really sad is they didn't eject it because it wasn't working, like, story-wise. They were even going to bring back Q for that. We'll see what they do with that in the Picard show, which, as a reminder, as of me recording, this has not come out yet. In fact, it comes out basically in two weeks now, to give you a little bit of time when I'm recording this. So, interesting to think about. But anyways, I'm getting off topic. They ejected it because it wasn't practical. See, here's the thing. They had been saving money all season, well, about half the season, to dump it onto All Good Things, which is the right choice, as I've mentioned before. So they had budget to spare. But money does not solve time. That's not how that works. So they still had to practically do this. And the way they did it was obvious. They had to. Do, they did one sequence, basically all the past scenes. Then they did all the present scenes. Then they did all the future. Actually, it was. I believe the actual order was future, past, present. But forgive me. The point being, they had to do all of them in one block, so that way everyone would stay in the same makeup, they'd have the same set designs, etc. And then when they were finished with the future scenes, they had to redo all the sets and redress them for the past, which meant making them look like they were the past, which was this huge undertaking. And involved a lot of work and some excellent, excellent production work. And then they did the past scenes, and they had to undo all of that again to get it back to normal for the normal scenes. And Because, after all, they were going to be starting to film Generations soon, and, in fact, had already done several, uh, like several months' worth of prep work on Generations. So this was a mess. Adding a fourth timeline just wasn't feasible. Okay, sure, no problem. The thing is, when I say it was a mess, I want to make this very clear. I could sit here and recite to you pages, plural, of interviews of people telling me exactly how much of a mess this was. 
It was a colossal disaster. It is astonishing to me that this episode was as good as it was, considering what was going on behind the scenes. Um, to give you another... Uh, th there's two other things I want to mention before we actually get into things. First of all, uh, usually you're given 14 days of prep time. That's time to kind of block out, look at the sets, design props, you know, basic all of the mapping out before we actually get on stage and start recording, right? So... The director had 14 days of prep time, during which nine of which he sat around doing nothing because the script wasn't ready. Then he had five days of prep time to actually prep. Yeah. Now you're probably thinking, well, hang on, what do you mean the script wasn't ready? Well, see, <laughs> what happened was they had the script and a lot of people liked it. In fact, actually, I should have this book open because I wanted to read a couple quotes about that. Um, there's this bit... Uh, here we go. So yeah, Pillar, Pillar did a massive rewrite, a huge rewrite. And what's funny is apparently everyone disliked the rewrites. Every single one of these interviews says, oh my god, this was a terrible decision. Uh, let's see here. Braga didn't like the rewrite. Uh, Stewart didn't like the rewrite. Spiner didn't like the rewrite. Uh, Ronald D. Moore didn't like the rewrite. You're probably thinking, what is the rewrite? Well, I don't know exactly... It would be nice if they someday, you know, released a version of the original script that... Maybe they have it, I just missed it, I don't know. The original script was a lot more Empire Strikes Back and a lot less Return of the Jedi. To explain that a little bit, the plot was substantially weaker and basically something more of a B-plot to the actual meat of the episode, which was just all about the character stuff. It was an hour and a half of character interactions. And Pillar was like, no, no, we need to have the plot. We need to have the threat of the week. <laughs> um, I'm looking at here. I'm trying to find the exact thing here. Instead, blah, 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 blah. I wanted it to end. Here we go. Here we go. This is a direct quote from Michael Pillar. Um, They're on their way to something until Act 9 in the 10-act structure. And I knew in my gut Act 9 had to be moved to Act 6. Instead of it being a romp with very sticky things that people loved, I wanted it to end with an adventure and a mystery. So, the temporal anomaly thing and the whole destruction of humanity thing was substantially uh, boosted in terms of priority and shoved substantially forward in the story arc. So it became far more about the salvation of humanity rather than the interplay between the characters in the past, present, and future. If you're paying attention, echoes of the original script are actually still visible because there are several scenes which almost seem out of place where just the the action seems to pause and the characters just react to each other and around each other and they're very close to each other and there's some really good character dynamics and interpersonal stuff. And uh, I do think this episode stuck the landing, but I have to admit I kind of wish they'd gone with the original, you know? I mean, for God's sakes, it's the series finale. You just just go ahead and go with the episode that, that everyone wanted, except for you, Pillar, and go give us this thing. You don't have to worry about ratings when it's the season, excuse me, series ender, and the movie's already under production. Like, that's already set in stone. You, you don't have to worry about, wow, well, the producers like it if there's not a big action sequence in the third act. Who gives a damn? Give us the episode that we wanted. And I know what you're thinking, well, that just sounds like fan service. Bingo. All good things is fan service. 
The catch is that word has become a little bit muddy and dirty in the last couple of decades at this point, where people tend to think of it as a bad thing, but it's not. Uh, fan service is just a thing. It's whether it's good fan service or bad fan service, that's what determines whether or not it actually works. Now I'm going to go and give my opinion here, and please feel free to disagree, but I think this is good fan service, or at least it could have been. As is, there's still some good fan service on display. A celebration, if you will, of TNG, of what Star Trek has become, and of the last seven years. Right? Anybody with me on that? I'm actually curious. As always, I am curious of your thoughts and what you think of the whole idea, but that rather massive change uh, to the script is pretty much singularly responsible for, responsible for most of the behind-the-scenes problems here. Makes an interesting what-if, doesn't it? Let's talk about the episode proper. This might take me a while, so bear with me, please. So, Troy and Warford dating. Where the hell did that come from? Oh, I know what you're thinking. They've totally been dating before now. Not really, actually. Like, I've talked before about how the writers were kind of setting up pieces for that, but they never actually did anything with it. In fact, the first time they actually kiss was in Troy's delusion. So they never actually... So so suddenly they're dating. And I bring this up because I remember my mother's reaction to this, which was basically, what? Like, just... Why are they... Okay, okay sure. They're dating now. All right, cool. That's neat. <clears throat> why are they dating? <laughs> Enjoy that because it'll never come up again. I mean, it'll come up in this episode, but uh, it's just gone by generations. And uh, completely gone in first contact. And then she finally ends up with Riker and Insurrection. And, uh, spoiler alert, and of course the Nemesis, they're actually married. So, yeah, I, uh, I don't know what they were really thinking with this one, but whatever, moving on. Oh yeah, also Worf goes on to Deep Space Nine, which basically never references Troy ever. So, that's a thing. So Picard shows up, and he's time-traveling. Dun, dun, dun. Cut, to, cut the thing. All right, so what's actually funny about this, I have a note here, and I want you to keep in mind this. The episode avoids the Cassandra Truth problem by having him jump as he's describing the jumps. Notice actually a little bit of good scripting. He mentions the type of jumps, and he mentions how there's a moment of disorientation, but then everything feels perfectly natural. Now, he doesn't say it in full exposition, which is good. He says it in natural dialogue. But what he means is there's a jump, and then his memories shift and adjust to retroactively accommodate the, the him that he now is rather than the him that he previously was. Make sense? So what immediately happens is he jumps, and then he's tending the vineyard, and everything's perfectly normal. There's, no, there's just like that moment of, huh? All right, got to tie up the vines. It's nicely done. Then uh, Jordy shows up. And he's like, hey, there's, there's, there's a warp core breach or the freeze inverters or some other damn thing. It's a nice little moment. And the two talk. They gel pretty well. You know, everything, everything's kind of neat. Uh, they mention it's been 25 years. So that establishes very quickly how, lo oh, attack. how long it's been between, you know, the end of the episode and the events we're now seeing. So 25 years jumped into the future. Okay. He also mentions the little one things, and you know, one of those little ones is actually going to Starfleet Academy. This establishes one of the threads of the future, that life is moving on, and that's portrayed in kind of a bad way rather than a good way. 
what I mean by that is there's moving on in the sense of coming to grips with the past and trying to learn and grow from it. And then there's moving on as in just kind of leaving the past behind because screw it. I'm sure there's better ways to describe that, but you know, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. So the, almost all of the future stuff is portrayed in a strange, not strangely, a very warped negative light. Even though people have gone on with their lives, it's portrayed almost universally as a bad thing. Riker is cantankerous and crotchety and not happy in his job. Worf is just absolutely miserable in what's going on. Crusher is uh, clearly uptight and not really satisfied with the position she's in. Jordy, while he's kind of, you know, accepting the good life, you can tell there's just some discontent there. Data seems to be doing fine, but how can you ever tell with Data? And, of course, Picard himself is, you know, tending the vineyard and uh, horribly diseased <laughs> on top of everything else. And there's just this era of wrongness about the whole thing. I'll come back to that later. So, then... We're back in the past. Now, one of the things that was mentioned uh, in, in, this, in this thing, here, let me find the exact quote so I can quote it for you. Um, someone was asking, you know, why not make this a movie? Here it is. Here it is. Uh, why not just make this a film? And several people were trying to compare this directly to Generations after Generations had actually come out. Um, Moore says, I think it is inevitable that people will compare it. We just know that this could never have been the feature. It's an inside, sh excuse me, it's such an inside show. You have to know the series a little bit and understand the characters and relationships to appreciate it. And, adds Braga, the final episode is too internal. It relies on knowledge of the show that is too much for a mainstream movie audience to have to know. Its structure is very radical. If the final episode were a movie, I'm convinced it would only play to an art house circuit. It makes Slaughterhouse-Five look like Sesame Street. Anyways, that's interesting because, first of all, it's absolutely correct. This is an episode for people who've been watching TNG. Something they probably should have been doing for about three years, but let's not get into that. But this is, this is an episode written for people who have been watching TNG. This, that's the target audience. They're not trying to drag in new people. They're not trying to catch you know, sweeps, or they're not trying to have people flip over to it. It is solely for people who have, designed, who have been doing it. And it's probably one of the only episodes designed in such a manner. That's because of how television was made back then. And, of course, that's completely different now. Uh, I, I could go into the whole Netflix thing. Netflix actually has a great deal of statistics and viewing figures that show that people nowadays prefer to binge. to, uh, In other words, to just sit down and watch a season in one go, which is why Netflix usually likes to release seasons in one bundle. Just, there, season one is now out. They did this uh, somewhat recently with The Witcher Show, for example. And they've done this many, many other times. I bring that up, though, because when you're doing a show in that format, like The Witcher, you can make the show for the people who are watching the show. What I mean by that is you might make the first episode to try and get new viewers and new people interested in it, and maybe the second or third, but by the time you're up to the fourth episode, it's for people who are watching the series. You can focus differently, and that changes the reality of what kind of a show you're making. Now, I'm bringing all of this up because I think this is one of the reasons why All Good Things was so much better than Generations, which was a mess. Brandon Braga, I've already dissected Generations. I did that rumination years ago. But Brandon Braga and Ronald D. Moore both commented on how when they sat down to do Generations, it was just this big, arduous, horrible task, and it was like pulling teeth. And when they sat down to write all good things, it just clicked perfectly when they, when they wrote their original draft before Michael Pillery wrote it. And I bring that up because I have to feel, and this is just opinion, 
but I have to feel that that differing focus was part of it. Because they just said it right here. The final episode is too internal. It relies on knowledge of the show, and that's too much for a mainstream movie audience to have to know. Right there, that says everything you need to say about the approach that was done to Generations. It had to have broad appeal. And what broad appeal means is less branching out into specific elements in order to try and ensure that it is more appealing to a larger audience. Uh, Put simply, if you were to rate enjoyment on a scale vertically and audience horizontally, they want it to be as horizontal as possible, which by definition means it cannot be that vertical. I know I'm describing this terribly, but this is a thing. I swear to God, you can look this up by people who are far smarter than me. If you make something for a very specific niche or niche audience, or however you're supposed to say that stupid word, uh, you can make it far more vertical because you can focus far more on the elements you know you want to be in it. Elements that other people won't get or won't appreciate or won't enjoy because they're not part of that target audience, right? You can see the logic here. And that logic is probably part of why Generations sucked. Now, you're probably wondering, why did I bring all this up now? Well, because the episode shifts and... And Yar's there. Tasha Yar. That moment means nothing to someone who's flipping to this and watching this for the first time. But for us, it's like, whoa, okay. And immediately we know what's going on. If you have an eye for detail, you probably noticed the uniform change, because the uniforms were different back in Season 1. So we've got Yar, we've got Picard, and and then they talk about going up to a galaxy ship for the first time, and it's like, yeah, okay, we know exactly where they are. They don't have to say the specific timeline, because we know it. The only reason they had to say it in the future was because we obviously don't know the future, but still, we are quickly establishing the three timelines. Okay, cool. Right back to the present. Now... I'm trying to think. There's something I want to mention, but I think I'll save that for a little bit. So they shift back. They scan. You know, they're like, okay, hang, what's going on? Ah, nothing much. But as they're scanning him, they she finds the defect for the Hereditarian syndrome or whatever the hell it is. That means he's going to be losing his mind and slowly deteriorating in the future. Quick aside, you'd think 20 years of medical science would be able to solve that, especially when they come back with Borg tech after Voyager, but let's not get into that. So, no, they scan, they find the defect, there's a couple of good personal moments, there's actually a lot of good personal moments in this episode, I'm kind of rapid-firing through them, because the next thing we find out is 30 Romulan warbirds have been sent to the neutral zone. You know, i got to be honest, why? I mean, the Romulans wanting to check that out, okay, but the only reason they would do that is if the Romulan military thought this was an actual incursion, and yet by all accounts they think this is just a thing they need to check out, but it's in the neutral zone. So why don't you send one bird, uh, cloaked, (laughs) to investigate, instead of, you know, raising the klaxon alarm, basically, which then, of course, leads to Starfleet sending 15 ships, because 15 ships can totally take 30 30 warbirds. (sighs) Anyways, then we shift again. This shows part of the premise here, the acclimation of retroactive memories, and they go back to see Data. I have to admit, Data actually worked really well for me in the future. Uh, Spiner, I don't know how much of this was director and how how much of this was actor, but Spiner put in a much more lore but not evil presentation 
His movements were far more fluid, far more natural. He had expressions. He had no problem with, you know, relaxing or making little gestures. And basically you could tell, and this is, this is good, that he had had so much additional time to acclimate to interacting with other people that he was a lot better at it. The episode even shows this in contrast by having a scene with past Data who does not understand the term burning the midnight oil. Now, there's some issues with that, but it does help to differentiate across the three timelines. In fact, of the many things they do to differentiate the three timelines, including uh, makeup and outfits and set design, one of the things I love most is Data, because he acts completely differently in all three timelines, and I love it. Moving on. So, Data is, first of all, Data has a ton of cats. Of course he does. But one of the things I love is that Data is very candid in his honesty. He's like, okay... In the interest of honesty, Captain, it's occurred to me that you could be just losing your mind and hallucinating. Because he could just be losing his mind and hallucinating. I mean, right? That is a very truthful statement. However, Data is Data. Uh, He's not quite Garibaldi, but he's certainly got a thoroughness to him. So he looks at this situation and says, well, okay, you could be losing your mind. Or you could be real. Let's do some tests. Now, I'll come back to the tests in a minute. But then we shift to the past. This is the part where Q is very clearly and obviously starting to, to screw with him. And this then leads to a couple couple tiny little tidbits. Um, so, first of all, Picard mentions that it, it, it's very brief, but the order given for, you know, you are ordered to take command of the ship comes from Nora Satie. That would be from the episode The Drumhead, where they actually mention that she was the admiral who was on top of him back when you know we was, she was still in but she had since retired by The Drumhead. Very nice little touch. There's actually a lot of little details like that in this one. I just wanted to point that one out because it's the one that shined to me. Anyways, and of course Picard gives, Picard, uh, gives an order to Worf. Whoops. Um... And you'll notice that, uh, so I mentioned Q is starting to really mess with Picard. I'll come back to that in a moment. But the, the jeering crowd only appears to him when he tries to talk. Just, just to me- it's, it's the perfect troll, you know, like, oh, okay, there's nothing there. What, there's something there? Oh, there's nothing there. Like, the, he doesn't reinitiate the irritation until he decides to go back to what he's doing. Picard, of course, takes command smoothly and effortlessly because he is very experienced at, with this crew and is a very good leader. And we get a little bit of fan service with O'Brien. It was good to see O'Brien again on the Enterprise, consequently. And O'Brien again in general. So, and there's this great bit, I already mentioned this, but it deserves repeating, where past Data you know, is talking to O'Brien about the Metaor. And, and Picard's just sitting there listening, smiling. It's, it, he's basically a fan insert at that point. Picard, and not a fan insert, that's the wrong phrase. Um... He's the fan's perspective character. You know, just listening to Data and remembering how Data used to be fondly. And it's like, oh my god, Mr. Data, it is good to see you. Come on. We will have to be igniting the Midnight Petroleum. I agree, Mr. Data. Let's go. It's a good scene. It's a good scene. Fan service, like I said earlier. And again, more than fan service, celebration. I was going to comment on something. um, But since I just brought it up, I think I will mention it now. Uh, this episode is, in many ways, the actual end of of TNG. Yeah, I know, we've got some movies after this, and I'll talk about that later, but it's nice that they got this send-off. Because TOS's crew didn't get a send-off in the show. Now, they did get a send-off, 
It took a while. They got there. Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, that's the send-off for the original crew. They did get a send-off, thank goodness. And the DS9 crew, they, of course, get a send-off, which I think will come live by now. Again, I don't have my calendar in front of me. But uh, I, I, let, let's just move forward. I'll, I'll come back to the movies thing in a minute. So they then warp back to the present, and, hey, they scientifically prove he's not senile. Huh, that, that's cute. So, then <laughs> then Riker, Troy, and Worf have a little pseudo-love triangle thing, which kind of comes in, but not really. That'll be relevant later, and only later in this episode, because, again, it'll never be mentioned again in the movies, but whatever. And then there's actually a really strange point, because Crusher comes into Picard's room, and is very friendly and very loving, and then actually straight up kisses him romantically on the lips. And it's just like, uh, but you, you, you yourselves have been dancing around this, and in fact, it has been mandated by the producers that he couldn't end up with her specifically because of the fact that you needed him open to have his one-off relationship in Insurrection. I know they didn't plan it that way. They just wanted him free for relations in the movies. And now you decide... Whatever. <laughs> what the frick ever. Moving on. So, back to the future. You know what I mean. That is... This is when the episode starts to irritate me. Up until now, I've just been straight up enjoying myself. Tiny nitpicks. Nothing really relevant. However, this is when the, the future, they make a recurring plot in the future that, oh my gosh, maybe he's crazy, and they lean on the Cassandra truth, you know, the one that they disproved earlier to us, the audience. I hate the Cassandra truth. It's one of the most irritating tropes in fiction for me. On the off chance you don't know what Cassandra truth is, it refers to a situation where character A knows something, and it is true, however, no one believes them. And it has led to so many scenes in fiction that just frustrate the ever-loving piss out of me. I hate it as a trope. And I hate it here. It is easily the weakest part of the episode for me because it's going to last pretty much until the final act. Here's the funny thing. They've already demonstrably proven that they know how to prove that he is, in fact, traveling through time. They did that in the, in the present to ensure that, you know, hey, no, he's actually telling the truth. So why don't they just repeat that in the future? Further aggravation, and I've never actually caught this before. He was going to go in for all those tests Data was going to do, but then he's like, no, we have to go to the Devron system. I wonder if the tests would have proven that he's telling the truth. And if that's true, God, that just irritates me even more. So, <clears throat> uh, yeah, the Klingons conquered the Romulans in the, in the warped future. Sure. And this leads to problem number two. There's no anomaly in the Devron system. I'll talk more about that later, but that is... <sighs> Not great. <clears throat> There's this bit where Data says, uh, restore a hologram, and it brings back a fireplace. Does he live on a holodeck? Like, he mentions he's in a house, but is there just are there just holodeck emitters all over the place? I mean, by this point, you know, the, the mobile... Uh, doctor thing was a thing, so maybe they actually just have emitters a little bit. I don't know. I'll just thought we've heard for that. So, there's this bit where they go forward. This kind of works and kind of doesn't. 
I love the transitions, by the way. They get better as the episode goes on. But they t- Data, LaForge, and Crusher, none of them believe... I call her Crusher. She's actually Picard at this point. Beverly. None of the three of them believe he's moving through time. But they're willing to do this for him anyways. I mentioned just last episode the power of loyalty to an individual. And I mention that because that is one of the dominant themes here. It's one of the only reasons the Cassandra True thing works at all. It still should have cut off earlier. But the way the reason it works at all is because these people don't believe him, but will still do it because it's him. Because they want him to have his last adventure. Because they want him to be able to do this final thing. Because this is important to him, and he is important to them. It's a nice little tidbit, and it kind of works and kind of doesn't. Then we go back to the past, and then things start to get really interesting, because Picard finally, finally calls Q out directly, and that's when Q shows up. You'll notice Q has clearly been messing with him this whole time, if if nothing else, ever since the, the crowd started showing up. I believe in the future was the first time it showed up. But, <laughs> only on Star Trek, right? I think in the future was the first time it happened. Anyways, <clears throat> Q finally shows up when directly called out, and been like, hey! Un Capitan, I thought you'd never get here. Q. Oh my god, I I just, I want to gush. Delancey and Stewart have always had absolutely amazing chemistry together. Uh, One of my favorite episodes of all time, Tapestry, tapped into that chemistry between the two actors. You just put them in a room and have them act, and it just flows. And it's wonderful and amazing and dynamic, and I can use all sorts of other words, but basically I'd just be gushing about it. But what I love about this is if you pay attention, there's a wonderful subtlety to Delancey's performance. So first and foremost, he wants he is the agent of the continuum, he wants to help Picard, and he wants to have fun. Now if you're paying attention, that is the three different takes on Q that, that different writers have used over the course of the series. And as I mentioned before, the reason Q is such an inconsistent character across TNG and Voyager is because different writers disagreed on how he should be. This episode somehow manages to seam together all three of those takes because he is the agent of the Continuum who is trying to help Picard and is having fun while he does both tasks. This is very apparent when he does the yes or no game. He he doesn't have to help Picard at all. He doesn't. He has no... In, there's no reason for him to help Picard here. But based on what we see, it's very clear that he introduced this method of executing humanity basically to leave an exit clause. If you don't understand what I'm saying, let me make this very clear. If the continuum, if AQ wanted to wipe out humanity, all they'd have to do is this. That's it. The end. It was Q himself who argued, well, hang on. And it's never, it's only stated, I think, twice in the episode, but it's made very apparent that Q is basically arguing with the court, with the continuum, the entire time. That he is actually our advocate, even though he is the executioner they have sent to deal with us. And so he has argued for this methodology so that we have one last chance to get out. It's actually kind of video game logic, because a video game is designed to be beatable, right? That's kind of the point of a video game. So the bosses and the enemies and the stages have weak points or paths or things that they probably shouldn't do and probably logically wouldn't do, but otherwise the game would be unbeatable. And where's the fun in that? So, Q 
gives us a chance to win. Now, I'll get more into that later, but I love the way it's presented because during his actual inter interactions and altercations with Picard, especially the first one, it's he deflects constantly. He always says, we, when referring to the judgments of the continuum, and you, when referring to the task of actual execution. He deliberately removes himself from the board verbally, constantly. The only time he actually brings it to himself is when he admits that he's the one bouncing Picard between the timelines. It's the only time he does it. In other words, we are killing you. You are the one taking up the task. I am the one helping you. Wonderful nuance. And it, it all just oozes through Delancey's performance. I know I, I gush about John Delancey, but my God. <laughs> so, we cut back to the future. I'm at some point I'll stop saying that I'm sure, or I'll just it'll just become normalized. And there's a nice little touch. There's a lot of little great touches in this episode. Uh, Worf says Captain Picard, and Captain Picard defers to Crusher. That is to say, Beverly Picard. It, it's a nice little touch because earlier he screwed up by automatically reacting to that. Just little details. Um, there's a wonderful scene where Picard appeals to Worf's sense of honor and loyalty. Worf says, I hate you for using this against me. And Picard says, because it always works. Your problem is you really do care about honor and loyalty and duty. It's not my fault for knowing you so damned well. It's a good scene. And of course, it does speak very core to what Worf is. He really is someone who believes very firmly in what I call internal honor. Real honor actually is what I call that. Excuse me. Internal honor is other people's terminology. I'm, I'm starting to adopt it here. Forgive me. <clears throat> what I call real honor. Uh, what other people call internal honor. So, engage. And engage to where, sir? The, the Devron system. I love the transitions. I know I've, I've actually written that note three times in my notes here. I love the transitions between them. It's especially noteworthy because, and uh, the director, Winner Colby, mentioned this, that it was so difficult to get them correct because the script changed so late. And remember, they have to film them separately. So if there's any issues, they're screwed because they can't just go back and refilm a past scene if they have to. They can refilm a present scene because that's the last one they do, but not past and not future. Yes, future, past, present, because that makes perfect sense. No, it does, though, from a production standpoint. So all of this had to be planned in advance. They had to know what they were going to be doing and when they were going to be doing it and how they were going to be doing it. So huge props for making it work. There are some really excellent transitions of him turning around to, to switch timelines or going through a bulk, you know, a, a door lift or whatever. It's excellent stuff. I have a note here. Man, Troy's old outfit really sucked, didn't it? So then Tom Malak shows up for his brief cameo. And again, it's basically there for fan service, although it was all, as always good to see Andres Katsulos. Uh, the problem, which I probably just pronounced his name incredibly wrong, but the problem is he basically just leaves the plot at this point. I do love his little tidbit. Does Starfleet Command know about this? And there's this hesitation for like a second before Picard's like, no. And then Tomalak's like, I like it already. <laughs> so, they go to the Devron system. And they go there and it's, it's oh my god, it's there. And then, sir, we're coming up with the Devron system. It's there, and it's even bigger. And then the future, they go to the Devron system, and it's not there. Um, th this is actually one of the biggest plot holes in the entire episode. Because 
what should have been there is a very small anomaly, minuscule, really, uh, probably barely detectable on sensors. They're like, huh, that's strange. Maybe we should send in a tachyon beam. And they send on the tachyon beam, and the moment they send it in, the anomaly goes away. And they're like, what the heck? That would have followed the logic of the episode and how they, you know, they present this entire anti-time phenomenon thing. <sighs> because the plot, the one that Michael Pillar restructured, is easily the weakest part of this episode. Oh, sure, it's big scale, and I'll talk about the scale of it in a moment, but the problem is it, it just basically skips over logic multiple times and has a lot of just-go-with-it baked into it. Now, I don't want to blame all of that on Pillar, but I want to blame a lot of it on him. <laughs> I'm kidding. I don't care whose fault it is, but it is, for me, absolutely the weakest part of the episode. Let's move on before we get too nitpicky. Um... I decided to do a little math. The anomaly in the present is the size of the orbit from Mars to the Sun. And the anomaly in the past is roughly double that. Which um, is kind of terrifying, that it could double its size in what is effectively seven years. But then we find out that Geordi's growing his eyes. I mentioned the plot having holes. Well, Geordi was born blind. And an anti-time anomaly is making him grow eyes that he never had. <sighs> Anyways, for all that I dislike the plot, there is one part of it I do like a lot, and I'll admit that freely. It's when Picard starts thinking like a D&D &D player. <laughs> for real. Because what he starts doing is he starts using the tools of the timelines across all of the timelines. He starts freely thinking and sharing knowledge across them. And not with the people, but like, Data Future says something, so he gives that idea to Data Present. And in Data Past, there's something they might use, which Data Present also has, and blah, blah, blah. The, the actually using all the tools of the three timelines to his advantage is one of the better parts of the plot. And it does actually smooth, uh, smoothly and neatly make things work. And of course, it leads to the, the creation of the, the, the plot and the plot hole. Ironically. Then the Negvars show up in the future and refuse to communicate. I thought this was interesting as a stylistic choice because it turns the Klingons into stormtroopers. I know that most people, when they think of stormtroopers, they think of people who can't aim. But what a stormtrooper actually is thematically is a faceless evil. Something that you don't have to feel bad about killing. You know, acceptable target is actually the term for that. And something that is just the bad guy, the end. There's, there's no nuance, there's no subtlety. They're the villain moving on. I'm not sure what I think of that, considering where the show might end up going in the future, considering where DS9 took the Klingons and then brought the Klingons back from, it, it's just, I don't know, it doesn't quite work for me, but at the same time, I'm willing to forgive it for one very important reason, and that would be the Spinal Lance. I'm actually curious, how many of you know what I'm talking about before I describe it? So the Galaxy Dreadnought, which is one of the earlier Dreadnoughts added to Star Trek Online, has a gun on it called the Spinal Lance, which is what they use in this episode. And that thing hits like a truck. <laughs> it's been a little bit out of dated by now. You know, STOs continue to advance, but that thing's mean. And we see it here as it just busts through the one of the Negvars pretty much by itself. It's a good scene. And it even has actual usage of multiple dimensions in combat rather than just being on a narrow plane. Just good stuff. Good stuff. I like it. Now, 
That then leads to Ogawa losing her baby. I, I don't actually have anything to add to that. There's no jokes here. That's just messed up. It is, however, well done. The scene, you know, Ogawa's laying there and she's sweating and she just looks horrified and on the verge of tears. And Crusher is, is appropriately somber and serious. A woman just lost her child before it was even born, which is a horrible thing to happen. But she also adds that this is what's going to happen to all of us if we don't fix this. With that simple movement, we understand the stakes very clearly. People will be reverted. Well, funnily enough, then the stakes are made even better. We cut back to the, the real past, the super mega, no really past. Q brings Picard back there. And you notice he is once again helpful. And I, I'm sorry to keep gushing about Delancey's performance, but he manages a perfect balance of being menacing and caring. He is still making very clear the threat that is being leveled at Picard. He is still being the agent of the continuum. But he cares enough to give Picard help and assistance and to showcase things in ways that show how much it is relevant to him. A truly dispassionate executioner wouldn't do any of this. A executioner who is only interested in his own amusement would maybe do a couple of these things. But an executioner who actively wants to spare the person on the block that's the person that Q is. Also, <laughs> let's get into speculation for a moment. In this time period, the anomaly covers your entire quadrant. That's messed up. This isn't about the end of humanity. Uh, this is probably about the end of humanoid life at this point. In fact, if we take this to its logical extreme... Remember, the preservers, or whatever they end up canonically calling them, are basically the ones who seeded you know, the galaxy with all of the life that, that ended up becoming, right? That, that's the, the time and the arc and why there's so many humanoid beings that are very similar to each other in Star Trek, right? But if this thing keeps going back, it'll prevent the preservers from ever existing. Never mind the fact that it's probably preventing any other species from developing either. This thing is preventing life from developing, on a galactic scale, and possibly larger. We could actually continue to speculate that if this thing was not stopped, it could keep going back basically infinitely, and that's the end of all biological life. Just food for thought. Now I know what you're thinking. The Continuum would never do that. Yeah, they would. The Continuum would absolutely do that. There are individual Q, I believe, who would be against that, say maybe five or so. But the Continuum as an aggregate? Nah. They are extremely draconian. They've always been presented as such, and will continue to be presented as such in the future. So, <clears throat> we go to the past. Oh, gosh, if only we had a topographic scanner, a, a topographic interviewing scanner. Doodly, doodly, doodly. Hey, do we have a scanner on board? Yeah, of course we do. It's gathering dust. In the... Sorry, borrowing a joke. Um, and then we cut to the future, and Picard's like, ah. Oh. There's a really good scene in Ten Forward. It's actually probably one of the best personal scenes that survived the original script. Because it's just all the characters talking and interacting and being themselves. We find out that Troy is dead, which is something that's been hinted at because of her absence from the future. But here it's laid out coherently. She is gone. And Worf and Riker have had a grudge ever since because of it. And Riker is still hurting 
from that loss. I'm reminded of the the book Imzadi where he never recovered from that. But no, like Riker is still having trouble with this, and Worf is still having trouble with this. Just all these little moments, and there's this. So right, Picard shovel comes in, and he's having trouble explaining what's coming up because what he's explaining is basically nonlinear time which is difficult to explain in English because English is designed in a linear fashion, as, as most languages are. You know, we are linear beings. That's how that works. But what he describes is actually a fairly basic level paradox. However, I mentioned the plot hole earlier. People who are more, far smarter and more dedicated than me have come up with ways to kind of explain around this. It basically involves time being a bell curve rather than a linear line, which, okay... <laughs> But um, before I, I don't want to go too much into that. I just wanted to mention it in case anybody uh, goes down to the comments and like, you're wrong. But the personal moment works for me as Picard's coming in because this is the one and only way the Cassandra Truth thing kind of ties in. Now, it's been irritating me the whole episode how much they've been. There's even this bit where Picard's like, no, please, we can't leave. And they just, they, they hyperspray him, which actually is hilarious that uh, Crusher just has a hyperspray on the bridge. But let's not get into that. So... That, it basically almost feels like filler because of the way they restructured it. However, this scene, basically this scene should have happened a lot earlier. That's just, that's the root of what I'm trying to say here. Because Picard reveals things and Data starts listening and Data's like, oh, that makes perfect sense. What do you mean? So Data starts to explain, which makes Geordi, who is also very smart, catch on, which makes Crusher catch on, and Riker, seeing the wall, writing on the wall, is like, yeah, okay, this is clearly real, and you're not crazy. Let's go check it out. Riker finally decides to believe Picard, and then immediately afterwards, he asks Worf to join him on the bridge, trying to bury that hatchet. It's a tiny little point, and I really legitimately feel this scene was originally earlier in the show. Because the idea is that Riker would be the only one who doesn't believe Picard. And when he finally does, the family gets back together. And for the first time in the future timeline, the family really is united. And that's when they find the anomaly, and that's when they fix it. And you can't tell me that's an accident. I love these... My third note here. I, God, I love these transitions. So, <clears throat> Picard in the past, meanwhile, he has another problem. He has to convince people who don't know him that he knows extremely well that they need to basically lay down their lives to save all life, basically. He gives them a low-yield Picard speech. And I'd like to think, and this is this is probably a bit of headcanon here, but I'd like to think it works because he is so damn sincere. Because he frickin' means it. Because Picard really does trust his crew, intimately and personally and perfectly. And that, lo that whole loyalty thing, loyalty to people, he knows his people. And again, that's the big theme of this work. The dominant theme of this entire episode is family. Not in the sense of blood, not distant family, not a cousin you meet once a year or people you might send messages. No, no, no. The people who are there for you and there with you when you are being dragged through muck and shards of glass. And they're still there for you. That's family. And that's what this episode is about. And I'm getting emotional here. Forgive me. But it hits these points beautifully. 
it hits these points and shows how much these people have grown and become so close to each other. And I note, and I note this here in my notes. This is why the future, the false future, is such an aberration. Because the family fell apart. Because they stopped being family. But those connections were still there, which allowed them to still be pulled together, which again is when they finally start fixing things. I wonder how the Picard show handled this. I made a deliberate decision not to delay this recording, partially because I have schedule to keep, but also partially because I wanted to make all this speculation before the Picard show comes up. Because the Picard show is set roughly the same time. I think it's like three years off from the false future here, the aberration future. I'm very curious what has become of the family in the Picard show. So then the past, you know, happens. The death, you know, they explode, which lets present Picard give a few bits of advice to Jordy, which allows him to have a few more seconds, which they then explode, and the future explodes. But this is the wonderful, great, horrifying irony. Uh, that's probably the wrong word, but I don't care of this. Because the anomaly? Well, that was just the axe stopping the axe from hitting your neck might save your life, but it's not going to stop the execution. No. What happened was his mind expand in a manner that impressed the continuum, that got their attention. And in so doing, that allowed the, the advocate, the judge, Q, to go to the continuum and say, look, he finally had ammunition, evidence, to show the draconian judges of the continuum, well, maybe they should deserve a chance after all. My personal interpretation is that as he's sitting on the bridge talking to future Picard, and he says, two down, one to go, it was good, but all good things must come to an end. As of that moment, he, I don't think he had convinced the continuum yet. And then it collapsed, and then that's when Q went to make his case, leading to him being in the courtroom with Picard. You're here, aren't you? You're talking to me, aren't you? The only way to ever win such an unfair trial as is presented is to win the heart of the judge. I think Sci-Fi Debris said that, but it's a very true statement. Q himself argued for Picard and for the people, and Picard thanks him. It's one of the most genuine thank yous I've ever heard from the, from the lips of Patrick Stewart. And you can see John Delancey, again, wonderful performance. He is just a little bit taken aback by that. And then when he admits that helping was all him, he finally admits what I've been telling you this whole time. He's actually, like, like there's a genuine, non-malicious, non-malevolent, non-mischievous smile. Just a real, yeah, I, I was helping. Because he does care. I love this scene, and I love the dynamic between them. And as Q tell, you know, what, what, what's waiting for him? Q goes to tell him and then hesitates and says, eh, you'll, you'll get there. I really wonder if John Delancey's going to be in the Picard show. Because there's always been a strong connection between Picard and Q. And frankly, that should probably be explored in the future. So they go back to the present. Everything's undone. Picard tells them everything, which avoids the it's all just a dream problem. Good touch there. Because everyone now knows the false future. And they all know 
what became and what happened. And basically what they hear is exactly what, what Riker and Worf kind of acknowledge, that the family broke up. And then they go to the poker game. This is probably the actual moment of best irony for me of this episode. Did you know, and I've talked about this before, did you know that the poker game was invented as filler? They were like, uh, we, we're running low, low on an episode. I forget the name of the episode. Please forgive me. It was a while ago. But they were running low on an episode. Let's have a poker game scene. Okay, sure. They just made a poker game scene. And it was just all about the characters. Which is what TNG is best at. The poker game kind of became TNG in a really weird way. Because it started off just something that people were doing just for frickin' cuz. But it became the heart and soul of the show. So many scenes around that poker table have been some of the best scenes of some of the best episodes. And so we have this final poker table, and well, the, the, the really horrible part is Picard never joined. So Picard finally shows up. And there's that line, you know, you were always welcome. I, I'll freely admit, this gets me in the feels every time. No shame. I'm actually curious, any of you? Does this scene hit any of you? <laughs> Picard's always been the father to the family, but he's never actually joined in, and him finally doing so is just such a heartwarming moment. And the overhead shot, beautiful shot, and the ship sails on. The end. And this is, and I'm going to say this again, basically the termination, the, the end point, the conclusion, the send-off of Star Trek The Next Generation. Yeah, I know, generations happened, and then First Contact happened, and then Insurrection happened, and then Nemesis happened, and then the Picard Show happened. By the time this episode's going live, I think Picard Show's Season 2 will have actually started. But this moment, the end of all good things, is the end of TNG. And it has been one hell of a ride. And I'm very grateful that this cast and this crew and these people who worked on this, these writers, producers, for all of the dreck and all the things I've made fun of for the however many lamentations I've given, holy crap, I'm happy they got their shot. Now we have this mark on history. And that history will never forget the name Enterprise. Thank you all of you for joining me for the last two and a half years, I forget how long it's been, as we've been recovering Star Trek The Next Generation. It has been... You know, I, I don't actually have words. It's been great. And I hope some of you enjoyed it with me. Next week, before I get too maudlin here, we do have one final thing planned uh, next week. So by the time this episode goes live, you will have known for months that we're doing a poll on the best top five, bottom five for TNG. Basically the same thing we did back on Voyager. So next week, that episode will be coming live on Mondays as usual. And then I'm not sure what's going to happen after that because I do these exceptionally in advance. But I hope you'll be looking forward to that. And I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts and my comments. I know I've enjoyed yours. See you around, guys.